Theo, how's everybody doing? Yeah. Dr. Payne is not here today. She's struggling with sickness. I am sick as well. I shouldn't be here, but you know, for you, I bleed myself dry. Uh, I know, right? Right? So no, but no hugs today as normal. No hugs after class, okay? Um, everyone's like, there's hugs? Where do the hugs come from? Dr. Anderson Campbell, give him a hand. Our academic czar is joining me up here today. I'm not sick. I have a hot mic, though. I'm not <laughs> sick, so I'm going to stand over here. We're going to stand apart. I brought him up here to ask right. him a question because he is actually a preacher in his church. He preaches on a regular schedule, and I wanted to ask him a question about a hard topic that we're discussing. Well, um, we're moving forward in the creed today, and we're adding a bunch of words. This is, what, this is when we're all going to struggle to say the creed correctly together at the same time. We're adding the words, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. All that. So I believe in in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. So we're adding all of that. We'll see how it goes. We might have to start, you know, getting out our notes and having some help as we recite the creed after today, but hopefully we can do it. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask Dr. Campbell this question. A, a, as a preacher of the gospel in a Christian church, yes, Psychologists have told us for a while, in, in different ways, that we have, as humans, and as a Christian, I assume, we're made in the image of God, so whatever we are fundamentally, that must say something about God, like God and God says something about us. We have these core emotions, like the movie Inside Out takes a shot at this, right? Have you seen that movie, Inside Out? It's yeah. a cartoon. And so those emotions are described in different ways, but one way I've heard them described is that human core emotions are joy, sadness, fear, and anger. And when I look at my life. I see some joy, definitely. Love the joy. I also see anger. I also see fear. And I see sadness. And I hide a lot of those things in my life for various reasons. I'll tell you one place I definitely have a habit of hiding them, though, and it's in faith communities and in churches. And I've often polled students, like, which of these core emotions do you feel is, like, encouraged in your faith setting? And which are forbidden? And often people will say, Oh, joy. Joy is like, you know, we clap for the Lord, we sing a joyful song. It's like joy, joy, joy. That's what Sunday is for. Sounds reasonable to, so, to some extent. But then these other ones, it's like crickets. Maybe some anger, you know, but like fear, sadness. And we've ventured into this place in the creed where fear and sadness are now part of our experience. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He dis it's like the creed is rubbing it in. Descended to the dead. I, from your perspective, as a Christian and as, as a pastor who preaches, I don't know, could you just riff for like literally one or two minutes? Why is it that these, are these emotions forbidden in church? Are we just bad at processing them? Like what's, the creed is there, why aren't we there? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're scared of these emotions because uh, especially like fear and sadness, mm. those we have connected so much to like the effects of the fall and of sin. And if church is the place that we're supposed to be going uh, to connect with God and who we were created to be, then I think that there's this aversion towards bringing that part of ourself into mm. church. Mm -hmm. Because if we have to wrestle with like in public sadness and fear in front of other people, mm -hmm. like what might people think? Right. And so we tend to try to cover that up with joy, make a joyful noise, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you're wrestling with fear or sadness, then 
there, there's got to be something wrong with you, right? Yeah. I mean, I even think of the, the readings from Job. Like, that's what Job's friends were kind of like trying to get at with him, right? Like, have you thought about what about this other, you know, have you right. looked at this, exa- you know, examined right. this part of your life? So I think in my practical experience, yeah, we do a bad job of creating space for sadness and for fear as part of the regular Christian life uh, and, uh, and, and the common Christian life uh, within the church. I also wonder if there's an extent to which in church we want to feel like we're winning, like we're getting butts in the seats, like people are showing up, there are, you know, churches, the heat doesn't work for free, you know, there's a building, there are people, and it's like, hey, come here, you know, put on the billboard, like, fear and sadness this week, you know, it's right. like, that doesn't put seats in the theater, it doesn't sell tickets. Yeah, I, and it's, I, I think it's hard to, like, do a sermon series on fear or a sermon series on sadness when people expect to come to church and to leave feeling a certain way. Right. Like, people, maybe they're bringing their sadness or their fear into church, but their hope is that they leave feeling joy or maybe just less sad or less fearful. So that makes it even a difficult topic to approach from a preaching standpoint as well, is when the expectation is that church makes you feel good when you leave, how do you talk about fear right. and sadness and even anger when those things don't make us feel good at the end of the day. We're going to continue on this theme today with our new phrases, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead with our lecture for the, t- the, for the day. Dr. Melissa Ramos, you may remember Dr. Ramos from some, yeah, yeah, yeah. give her a hand. Encourage her a little bit, okay. She's backstage. Um, she's going to talk about these topics. Um, she's, an old, she's a scholar of the Old Testament in particular, but also has been a pastor in her life for many years, and so she's familiar too with the way that this works in church and the way that we have to deal with ourselves and each other and all that we bring to the table and all that Jesus brought to the table when he went to the cross and was crucified, died, and was buried. Will you say the creed with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Melissa Ramos. Good morning. Everybody's like, good morning. It's January. January is like the perfect time to talk about depressing topics, I think. Because maybe we're already like a little bit depressed. Anyone? January blues? Yeah. Does anybody think to themselves like, I can't wait for January? Yeah, probably not. I I mean, statistically, there's probably a few people in here that have birthdays in January. I feel sorry about that. But probably not as many people are as excited about January as you are. I mean, the holidays are over, right? And when we're in school, we're facing this like whole semester of work in front of us. And we have a spring break, but it's not until March, and that's like two months away. Newburgh, it's raining. And then it's raining some more. And then it's raining again. Is anybody feeling depressed yet? Well, that's great if you're feeling depressed, because um, it's a great time to talk about depressing topics and kind of press in a little bit to our seasonal affective disorder, our January blues. Good time to talk about topics like suffering. Last week, Dr. Doak gave us this fantastic lecture about suffering. And part of what was so great about it, at least part of what I loved about it, was that it was so honest about our experience of suffering. It wasn't an attempt to kind of whitewash it or make it go away. 
was a, a great lecture in that sense in its honesty. And today we're going to continue in the same vein with another dark topic, with death and dying, and specifically the death of Jesus. Chapman University recently did a survey of the greatest fears of Americans. Unsurprisingly, death made it solidly in the top five. Now, people often say things like public speaking is the number one fear, but the survey, it actually didn't turn out that way. Public speaking didn't even make the top 50. So maybe that's good. Maybe people's priorities are reorienting and we're just getting objective about the fact that getting up in front of people, it's just really not as big a deal as dying. It just isn't. Might feel that way, but it isn't. Maybe it's good people's priorities are reorienting. And also on the topic of death and dying, the undead appeared in this list of top 100 fears of Americans. So what's interesting is that zombies and ghosts made the list. And even clowns, even though they're not undead. Zombies came in at number 88. That's actually a pretty respectable number. Ghosts just won down at number 89. Clowns not far behind, number 91. So both zombies and ghosts in America seem to rank a bit more scary than clowns, all in the top 100 fears. Now, another thing that I found very interesting about this list, especially the top five, top 10, is that death or dying itself was not really in the top five or top 10. It was instead the death of a loved one. So apparently that's much scarier, according to the survey, than dying ourselves. I wonder, does that ring true for us? Maybe, maybe it does. That, that having somebody that we love die, that's even scarier than dying ourselves. This brings me to a verse in the Old Testament that I want for us to actually learn today. And, um, and we're going to say it out loud. The passage will be our, my overriding theme for this talk. And it's maybe not one that you would expect to hear on the topic of Jesus, crucifixion, death, burial. It's from the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. It's, uh, it's a verse that actually you've heard before in one of the talks that Dr. Garcia gave last semester. And from the book of the Songs, the book is sometimes called the Song of Solomon also. In Hebrew, it's Shirei Hashirim, which literally translated means Song of Songs. But really, the meaning is more like, best song ever. It's actually kind of a racy book. And people sometimes wonder, what's this doing in the Bible? So now everyone's going to go home and read it tonight, right? That's because I said it was racy. It's a song about romantic love, about passionate love. It's between a couple who are about to get married. It's a wedding song. And the song has sometimes also been understood in more of a metaphoric sort of way for understanding the love that God has for God's own people. Now, no matter how you read the song, the specific verse that I want us to learn, it's about two very powerful human realities, love and death. So the verse goes like this. You might even want to write it down in your notes. We're going to be repeating it during the talk today. Love is as strong as death and passion fierce as the grave. So 
So we're going to say it out loud a couple of times together, uh, kind of the same way that we do the Apostles' Creed. So uh, I'm going to say it for you once more, and then after that, I'm going to have you join in and jump, um, jump in with me saying it. So again, it goes, love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. Okay, now let's do it together. I'm going to start, and I want you guys to jump in with me. Ready? Here we go. Love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. Now, anytime I start with it, I want you guys to jump in with me during the talk, okay? So be prepared, have it ready, have any notes, put your finger on it. Now, to come back for a moment to this survey of the greatest fears of Americans, it was done by Chapman University. Death made the top five fears in the list, as I just mentioned, but not dying itself. What people are more afraid of is having someone that, someone that you love become seriously ill or someone that you love dying. Because love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. Good, you guys are getting it. So today my talk will cover three main points about the death of Jesus. And I have some visuals to help us remember just a summary of these three main points. If you find yourself getting lost in the talk in the middle, you can look on the whiteboard. I'm going to write them up there in a minute. Um, so I want to also, in these three points, I'm going to include two themes from last week. You can kind of think of this talk as like part two from last week's talk. So three main points are this, the cross, free willy, and let's fight. So I'm going to put these up on the board. I'm so bad at drawing, I'm not even going to try. You wouldn't even know what I was trying to represent. The cross, free willy, and let's fight. For those of you who are listening to the podcast of this, I basically just drew a big cross in the middle of a whiteboard and free willy on the left and the words, let's fight on the right. So first, the cross. I actually find it a little bit ironic that I was scheduled for this particular lecture this semester because I find it hard to think about and a bit hard to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the abstract, it's fine, I'm fine with it. As a historical event or as a theological concept, I'm fine with that. But when I think about it, actually happening, or try to imagine it in my mind, imagine the scene playing out, I actually find it kind of traumatizing. This feels kind of awkward to talk about in a group like this. I've actually hardly talked about this with anybody. My husband Francisco and I, we went to watch the movie, maybe some of you have seen it, The Passion of the Christ. We went one time to see that. It's a film um, by Mel Gibson, and at the time it came out, it was kind of controversial because it was rated R. It does actually portray the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus in fairly realistic terms, which means pretty violently. At the time we went to see it, it was actually at a theater, maybe it was some event around Easter time. We didn't even make it to the scene of the crucifixion. When Jesus was being taunted in the courtyard in the film, and there was a crown of thorns placed on his head, which pierced the skin and blood started to come down. I knew there was some flogging that was about to happen. 
I just looked at Francisco for just one second, and he knew what I meant. We both just got up and left. I just, I couldn't do it. Maybe others of you have a similar reaction. Maybe you don't. If you aren't a Christian, maybe this sounds a little bit strange to you. So I'll try to explain it, but it's a little bit hard to articulate. I think in general, I'm fairly sensitive to violence that's being depicted in any way, sort of in the media. It wasn't always this way. And in a sense, this kind of thing is depicted in front of us pretty gratuitously. We see people killed right in front of us all the time, but on screens. Maybe this forces us to create some emotional distance that makes it hard to connect with the crucifixion in some ways. But for me, I think what changes it is the years that I spent as a pastor in a church in Kansas. It makes the story just, it feels too real to me. It's too raw. Maybe it's because I spent a lot of time with people in crisis, a lot of time with people who are suffering. I've also done quite a few funerals. It's a way of experiencing death from a different viewpoint, a different perspective. Doing funerals is part of the job of pastors. People sometimes think or, or, or tell me that they think the life of a pastor is sort of quaint and peaceful. When people, I think, imagine pastors or priests or what they do during the week, I think they imagine someone who's reading theology books and preparing a Bible study, getting ready to give a sermon or a homily, uh, a homily and doing uh, worship services. But it's, it's not really like that. At least it, it wasn't for me. Not everyone's experience is the same in pastoral ministry. I mean, I did those things. I read theology books. I, I gave sermons, baptized babies, and those kinds of things. But a lot of my time was spent doing things like making hospital visits. And as a clergy person in Kansas, I had this clergy badge when I would go into the hospital, and that would get me in anywhere. Neonatal intensive care, emergency room, anywhere. And so some of the things that I did as a pastor is pray for people in the emergency room who are part of my congregation or family members. I sat with a couple when a doctor told the husband that he was going to die of cancer in a matter of months. I prayed for a young woman who would come to my office frequently and she cut herself. The life of a pastor is actually pretty gritty. I remember having conversations with strangers who were suicidal and just found the number of our church in the phone book and would call and they just happened to get me. It's pretty gritty. Maybe some people listening to this talk are pastors. You know what I'm talking about. I did do a lot of funerals, maybe some, maybe more funerals than some other pastors because whenever someone called our local funeral home and requested a female clergy person, I was the only one that they knew. I wasn't the only one in town, but I would get the call, and, and I was fine with that. I considered, considered kind of part of my service to the, the wider community to do funerals and services for people that weren't part of my congregation. But during that time, that season of life for me, I spent a lot of my days in the midst of people's pain. I kind of, in my mind, used to call it descending into the chaos of people. And I think that it changed me in ways that are permanent. I, I can't go back from it. 
it's like exercising a muscle. It gave me this awareness of the pain that people carry around with them, just ordinary life. Maybe we do our best to kind of cover it up with a veneer of normalcy, but it's there, this lingering specter. So I think I'm different now from the experience of my years in pastoral ministry, but it's probably a good thing, probably good. And so I bring all of that with me when I think about the actual crucifixion of Jesus, or in any way, in whatever way I can, try to imagine it, to enter into that space of pain. For me, it's like imagining it happening to one of my own family members, because that's how I feel about Jesus. But it's worse because it's God. Maybe some of us in this room also feel that way about Jesus. And if you don't, maybe just try to put yourself in our shoes for a moment. It's also why I don't usually attend Good Friday services at churches, even though I'm kind of a churchy person as a pastor. And in the church calendar, Good Friday, that's the day when the church remembers Jesus being nailed to the cross. I, I can't do it. I can't sit through it. And some churches even include things in the services, like the sound of hammering nails in the background, and I just have to get up and go. It feels traumatizing to me. When I was a pastor, I mean, I couldn't get out of going, right? I mean, you know, that's the job. Our church was more liturgical, and we had services all week long during Easter. Sometimes that week is called Holy Week, leading up to Easter. We had Ash Wednesday, we had Maundy Thursday, and that's the day when we remember Jesus' last supper with his disciples. We also had a Good Friday service every Holy Week. And there were two pastors on staff, and my colleague Rob and I would take turns leading the services because there were so many, you know, we didn't want just one person to do them all. So I would always ask to plan Good Friday. I did that so I could find a way to contain it for myself, to make it manageable. So when I planned it, it was basically just a service of prayers, scripture readings, extinguishing candles. That's just, that's all I could manage. And thinking even in an abstract way about the crucifixion, it leads us to ask a question. Why would God allow this kind of cruelty? And to his only son? Or if we think radically about the divinity of Jesus, God's allowing this to happen to God's own self. I mean, wasn't there some other way to bring us salvation? If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we have to believe that God could have stopped this. And in fact, there's a passage in the New Testament in more than one gospel where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in the days leading up to his arrest, right before, in fact, he's arrested. And Jesus is, is praying to God about what he already knows is going to happen once he enters into Jerusalem. And in fact, he knew what was going to happen, so he asked the disciples to stay awake in the night and pray with him, maybe for some support. But the disciples, they couldn't even do that. They fell asleep. They abandoned Jesus even before he was arrested. So Jesus in the garden, he's already alone. 
he prays and asks God to take this cup from him. The Gospels affirm that Jesus knew what was coming, and he had a choice not to go through with it. But at the end of the prayer, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. In this moment, Jesus accepts that this is the will of God for him. And Jesus accepts it because love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. But how is this cruel suffering the will of God? These questions bring us right back to the lecture that Dr. Dope gave last week. And he presented several ways of approaching the problem of theodicy, the problem of suffering, the justice of God. And I want to highlight two of these as ways of approaching the crucifixion of Jesus, his death, his burial. These aren't the only two ways to approach it, but they're the ones that I'm going to explore today. On the fri uh, last Friday's panel, I thought that Professor Doan gave a, a very convincing defense of eat your veggies. And I personally feel convinced after that that most of my suffering is probably actually very good for my character. But today we're going to explore two of the other paradigms for the question of the Odyssey. They're the ones that I have put up on the board so you can track with me. So this question of why God allows the suffering of Jesus, we're going to explore it using free willy and let's fight. So the first one, free willy, it's almost as sobering as the crucifixion itself. The idea that free will played a role in Jesus' very violent death. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane shows us that, that Jesus did submit to his death by his own free will. But instead, I want to talk about our free will, how that played a role in the death of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that the Roman authorities, they had been looking for Jesus, and one of Jesus' very best friends, named Judas, exercised his free will and gave the Romans the location of Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. That's what he considered that friendship to be worth. So Jesus was arrested based on the information of Judas, and he was first brought to trial in what was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was sort of the local governing jurisdiction. And their Judean religious and legal experts, they held a trial. The trial seemed a little bit ad hoc, took place at the home of the great high priest. The prosecutors had trouble finding any real evidence against Jesus. But the local officials exercised their free will and declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. And so then they brought him to Pontius Pilate, who we talked about last week, because the local Sanhedrin didn't have any authority to, to actually exercise punishment. And as we already heard in last week's talk, Pilate also found no real evidence to convict Jesus. But because of the pressure of the crowd that was on him, he exercised his own free will 
and then just gave Jesus back into the hands of the local authorities to decide what the punishment would be. And then the crowd that was there exercised their free will and called for Jesus to be crucified. Even though he really hadn't been found guilty of any crime. Now when we're reading the Gospels, I think many of us, we, we might self-identify with the disciples in the stories. Maybe we read the stories about Jesus like we'd be one of the disciples. Maybe we don't read it that way. But I think actually the, 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 the Gospels sort of lend themselves to being read that way. They invite us into the story of what it's like to be a disciple. But what if, what if it would be more accurate for us to identify ourselves with the crowd or the local leaders? When I'm reading the Gospels, I really want to think that in the story, if I were part of the story, I would be a Peter or a Mary Magdalene, and I'd like to think that I'd, you know, like that become an important leader in the early church, and that feels sort of more inspirational to me. But the people who called for Jesus to be crucified, they were the religious leaders in Judea. They were priests, pastors, Bible teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees. I think... You know, people might describe me as a fairly churchy person, a religious person. And I'm a Bible teacher. So actually, that sounds a lot more like me than the disciples. And we're at a Christian college, and so I think it's a, a thought worth considering. Maybe, if you feel like you're not really sure if you fit in at George Fox, maybe you're on the better side of this story. Maybe you really would be one of the disciples. I'd like to think that I would have been a follower of Jesus in the first century if I were part of the story set in Palestine. But what if I would have been part of the mob? Or the Sanhedrin who called for his crucifixion? It's very sobering to think that God came into our world, took on human form to be amongst us, and we killed him. Humanity killed him. Preaching and the teaching of Jesus about caring for the poor, caring for your neighbor, the dangers of wealth. These were frightening things to people. So frightening that he was considered a dangerous criminal. We do not like our darkness brought into the light. And being confronted with the glory of God, it can be a frightening thing. So frightening. That when God came to us, we killed him. And it was the most religious people, the religious authorities, Bible teachers, who called for this violent death, shouting, crucify him. So my question for you to think about is who do you think you would be in this story? Not who you want to be, who do you think you really would be in the story? Part of the mob, a disciple, one of the scribes of the Pharisees. And maybe to press the question a little bit further, if Jesus had not come to Judea, to first century Palestine, but instead came to Newburgh some 2,000 years later, maybe we can compare Newburgh with Nazareth, a little bit. 
small place, but near a big place. Again, I'd like to think, well, I'd be a disciple. Maybe I'd quit my job and follow Jesus. But I think the outcome would be the same. If God came to us now, even in our little world, I suspect that we would still kill him. That's a very sobering thought. Who would be calling for his death? Those with the most to lose. Free will. There is a sense in which our own free will killed Jesus. We're responsible. Humanity did it. And if given the chance, I suspect we would do it again. So again, we come back to this question. Why does God allow this? Why does Jesus contain his power, withhold from calling on legions of angels to defend him? Why does he submit himself to the cross? One answer from the scriptures, I think, is this. Love is as strong as death, and passion as fierce as the grave. Sometimes the death of Jesus is even called the passion in the Christian tradition. I also want us to approach this question from another one of the paradigms that Dr. Dote gave us, and I'm pointing to the board over here for those listening to the podcast, the paradigm that he called let's fight. Today I don't really have time to talk about theories of what's called the atonement in Christian tradition. In two weeks' time, you'll hear a lecture from Dr. Garcia where he will present these, and there'll even be a debate about this. That sounds fun. So I won't spend time on the term atonement today or what it means, but when it comes to the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, one of the radical claims of Christian tradition is that Jesus faced death in order to defeat it. And the let's fight paradigm Suffering is something of a call to war. In a way, in the lament tradition, it's a way to call upon God to change things, to rise up against injustice and violence and hatred. It's a great week to think about that, as we just celebrated our memory of Dr. King. And so Jesus submitting to the violence of the cross, it's a surprising way in which we can imagine that God sort of rises up, that Jesus rises up and takes into himself receives into himself the violence, the hatred, injustice. In the panel last Friday, the image, one of the images of Jesus from the book of Revelation was mentioned. This image of Jesus wearing a robe that's dipped in blood, striding out to battle with eyes flashing with fire, and a sword coming out of his mouth, riding out against the forces of evil. Professor Doan in the, in the Friday panel suggested that in this image, Jesus might be stained in his own blood. And I liked this idea. I think it does connect then with the violence of the crucifixion itself. It also seems that this image could refer to Jesus as leading a cosmic battle against the forces of evil. The Christian tradition upholds that what was happening in the crucifixion was not just the death of one man, but a powerful moment that changes all of history. The death of Jesus is sometimes called the turning of the ages. 
The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and he descended to the dead. I just recited that today. And some versions of the Creed even say that Jesus descended into hell. That's the version I grew up with. Maybe it's one you know too. The Bible says actually very little about what happens after Jesus dies in the days between Jesus' crucifixion and burial on the Sabbath and the, and the resurrection that happens on the third day. We're not going to get there yet today. The Bible kind of gives us this human perspective, the experience of Mary who discovers the empty tomb and the disciples who, who run to check and see, but they only find the clothes that he was buried in. But that's skipping ahead too far to the resurrection. For the disciples... This time in between, it must have been an agonizing time. They truly believed that Jesus was the son of God, that he'd come to initiate this new kingdom. And then they watched him die, this agonizing death right in front of them. What about Jesus' side of the story? What happens after he stops breathing on the cross? The Bible says remarkably little about what happens. The Gospels tell us that at around the moments of Jesus' death, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, that great darkness comes over the land. Is this a weather event? Is this a supernatural darkness? The Gospels don't really say. And Matthew's Gospel also observes an earthquake type of event that happens around the time of Jesus' death. But the Bible doesn't really tell us what happens from the perspective of Jesus. It's fairly silent on this issue. There are a couple of hints or glimpses. First Peter 3 makes a reference to Jesus preaching to the spirits who are in prison. What does this mean? Should we understand this as, as preaching to the dead? Preaching to people in hell? The Old Testament idea of Sheol? The verse doesn't really give any more specifics. Ephesians 4 also says that Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth. And is this a reference to burial? Interpretations of these two passages have varied pretty wildly in Christian history. There's even a document called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's from the third century, so written a couple hundred years after um, the latest books of the Bible. And the Gospel of Nicodemus narrates Jesus rescuing people from an underworld, including Adam, other Old Testament figures. But none of this is in the Bible. The Bible does portray Jesus' death as terrifying and violent, but also as something that was required. Jesus, again in this moment of praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, is asking God to find another way. And finally says, not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus also was on the way to Jerusalem with the disciples, his last trip to Jerusalem, he told them everything ahead of time that would happen. He told them that he'd be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, that he would be condemned to death, that he'd be flogged and crucified, Peter is alarmed at this, and he takes him aside and says, Lord, this must not happen. And then Jesus 
gives this incredibly stern rebuke to Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Which seems to imply that that to not go through with these things that Jesus knows are going to happen, it's somehow a temptation from Satan. And to not do it is an evil path to take. So the Gospels in this sense are very clear that Jesus' death, even though it's frightening and terrible and violent, that it's a good thing for us. The crucifixion of Jesus also suggests that maybe suffering and even death cannot be healed by vengeance. It cannot be made right by more hatred or more violence. And even an end of suffering doesn't necessarily bring healing from its effects. But the way of Jesus, the crucifixion, proclaims that the antidote to suffering, the place of healing from suffering, it's love. Because love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. In the Christian tradition, we even dare to celebrate the death of Jesus. And that's why I have these elements up here. We're not going to participate in communion today. But I wanted to leave the elements up here as a visual display of sorts. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, there is a loaf of bread and a cup up on the stage. And as we, in our own congregations, in various different ways, celebrate the Lord's Supper, sometimes called the Eucharist or communion, we say the words that Jesus said to his disciples during the Last Supper. We say, take, eat, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink from it, remember me. And as we think about the cup and the bread, it's a moment in which we also proclaim that love is as strong as death and passion as fierce as the grave. Thank <laughs> you.